Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. No, Ben, no one read about that Horowitz thing. Hour number <laughs> no two cares. of your Ben Jarofsky <laughs> show for Thursday, December 12th. is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions again for sponsoring this program. All these unions are great. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9. The International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. And the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. We can't thank you unions enough for sponsoring this program. And, of course, today's Ben Jarofsky Show for Thursday, December 12th, is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Our number two, let's... Hold on a second. Okay, let's go. It is Thursday, December 12th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, we still got in these times writer Miles Camp Lassen in studio. And it's the return of Chicago political consultant. He brought a guitar. Ben calls him PC, and that does not stand for political consultant. No, it stands for Peter Cunningham. And now your host, boy, furthest thing from a political consultant, <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Uh, Miles still in the studio. Peter Cunningham is joining us. Going to bring him on in a little while. He's brought his guitar. He's going to do a little singing for us and a lot of political discussion. I know what I was. I, Peter, I was going to ask you about it. it. had to do with this $1.2 million settlement to a family of men who died in police custody. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Talk about when PC's in the studio, we talk a lot about policing and uh, criminal justice issues. And this is a very interesting test case. Uh, for the city council. Uh, so I remember I remember I was talking to Peter Cunningham on the phone today, Dan. I was like, I can't remember what it is I want to ask him about. I just remember what it is. So I put that in your brain. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little while. Meanwhile, Miles is still in the studio. Miles Conflassen from In These Times. All right, Miles, you mentioned the front, t- the top tier candidates uh, in the, uh, the uh, Democratic uh, primary uh, as we head out of 2020. Uh, Who would you say those top tier candidates are? Well, I think it's uh, pretty clear we've, we, we've kind of settled down to Joe Biden, who's been fairly steady, although, as I just mentioned earlier, we have seen a drop in his poll numbers, especially in the early states. Um, on his heels, if you look at the Mammoth poll or the Emerson polls, Bernie Sanders, and below that is uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, usually in, in, in fourth place, and Elizabeth Warren uh, in third. So I think that that's basically where it's at. You have the, the, dif- the difference is, you know, Harris has now dropped out, so her votes are kind of spreading into between other candidates. And of course, uh, you have the entrance of Mr. Bloomberg, and in some polls, he's you know ranking in five percent. Steyer, I think, was a nine in one poll. So Na- the, nationwide or in a, nation, a nationwide. Mm-hmm. So this is you know you're you're seeing the effect of you know when you do a massive drop like I just mentioned these numbers, hundred million dollars on 
um, TV, you're going to see a, a poll bump. I mean, that's I think that's part of the reason Buttigieg has um, seen some success in Iowa is because he's just focused. He's taking all this money from hedge fund managers, as we know, and he's been funneling it into ads in Iowa that have been blanketing the airwaves. So there is, you know, a relationship between that. I think the difference is we don't really know until um, caucus day what's going to happen in Iowa. Iowa is obviously one state where it's very hard to predict because it really depends on, for one thing, first-time caucus goers. That's really what won it for Barack Obama in 2008 when he had that shock victory. Um, and that's what Bernie Sanders is relying on. That's what his kind of path to victory in Iowa is. And the um, uh, the Des Moines Register had a really great piece on that, on kind of his sticky support that he's built up of people that are willing to spend hours in a you know caucus hall um, supporting him. I mean, that's what it requires. Supporting who? I just supporting Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it's unclear if that'll be true for other candidates because it really requires in these caucus states for you to spend a lot of time um, supporting your candidate. And so, if you're not capable or willing to do that, it's it, much harder for you to be successful in that. So, I think that that's going to be a big uh, challenge for a lot of these other candidates who are hoping to stay in the race, whether it's Cory Booker or Amy Klobuchar or other people. But I think right now, as you can see, I mean, and even in the, the upcoming debate, I think there's only been seven or eight candidates that have qualified. I think Yang just got in, but Yang otherwise got it's, in, yeah. um, it's, it's mainly settled. So I think that's really what the the race has come down to right now. And I think that that's why, and you, certainly, you know, Deval Patrick entered, he's kind of fallen flat as soon yeah. as he got in there. So I think other candidates might try to jump in, but at this point, it's really difficult to imagine them. And Bloomberg has even said he's going to skip all those early states and he's just going to focus on Super Tuesday, which makes it sound kind of like a sabotage campaign more than uh, anything else. Well, I don't know who he's sabotaging. I know his votes aren't coming for Bernie. So it's a very bizarre campaign uh, that Bloomberg is running. Can't haven't really quite figured it out uh, uh, yet. Uh, now, Joe Biden, I'm fascinated with Joe Biden's campaign. Uh, on many levels, as everybody knows, I have this lingering fondness for Joe Biden that's in a inexplicable uh and it's just as a character i guess i like him i also like the fact that he knows how the game of politics is played i'm pretty much against uh almost most of the stance he's taken down through the years uh but nonetheless the irrationality of me as a voter uh is on full display that said this guy in some ways is as flawed as trump i mean i i i was uh, talking earlier in the show before he got here about his son, uh, this, this embarrassing uh, uh, child support case that the yeah. son is involved in. Uh, but it, it, the heart of the impeachment hearing on uh, that the Democrats are uh, running against Donald Trump is the fact that Donald Trump was trying to force the Ukrainian president uh, to make a statement that they were investigating uh, Joe Biden's son uh, and his connections to Ukrainian uh, energy company. Miles, it's just the while this is unfolding, Biden is going to be getting as much bad press as Trump is getting, yeah. uh, and and Biden, you know, he's got this what the no malarkey bus. He's got bizarre behavior where he's threatening guy. But in the age of Trump, it seems as though I don't know. You could argue that bad campaigns, flawed candidates, bag bag loads of bad baggage works. I mean, I think the major difference between, uh, obviously, their politics are completely different, but Donald Trump ran a campaign against the establishment, against everybody, you know, and it was very clear everybody was against him. I mean, that wasn't wasn't some conspiracy. He, you know, they were, everybody was working to undermine 
uh, Trump's campaign, and I think rightly because they saw him not just as a you know threat to the republic, which is being played out now through these impeachment hearings, but also uh, you know a threat to working class people across the country, which is very true if you whether you looked at you know his new tipped worker rule, which is stealing money from tipped employees, whether it's the, um, you know, his work to uh, bust unions across the the country through his Department of Labor. There's so many ways in which Donald Trump has been a, uh, you know, disaster for working class people. And I think people, you know, on the left certainly saw that and rallied to stop him. But even Republicans thought this guy is, you know, for one thing, he's going to lose most likely if he's our nominee. And he is representing a very different you know, vision for the Republican Party than what, you know, even Ted Cruz and um, Marco Rubio had put forward. So they were all against him. Joe Biden, the party establishment is, you know, he's the face of it in so many ways. And he's running to, this is very unusual, but he's saying, we need to go back, you know, rather than we need a new direction for the country, we need to move forward. What his campaign, he's open about it. He says, no, we need to return to a time, you know, when uh, before Donald Trump, when we had civility, when things were, you know, back to normal, basically the Obama days. And that's why he brings up Obama nonstop. Well, for so many people, they just have seen that, you know, the uh, politics weren't working for them then either. I mean, the wage growth has been uh, stagnant for so many years. We have, you know, health care keeps getting cut. I mean, of course, the ACA was helpful in some ways, especially in Medicaid expansion, but it still left tens of thousands, uh, tens of thousands of people um, uh, without any health care coverage. Um, and yet what right now we're seeing is that people are are trending towards candidates. If you look at both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's poll numbers together, it's very clear the Democratic electorate right now wants a change. So I think that's very different in terms of how their campaigns are being run. Trump was running as an anti-establishment candidate. Joe Biden is running as like the establishment candidate du jour. So I think that that's, you know, that's going to be very clear. What you just said about Hunter Biden, though, I think it's a huge liability for him in the general election. Trump's going to go after that, you know, nonstop. For me, I have some sympathies for Hunter Biden. I think, you know, he's had a, a I think, you know, he got a good deal when he was working at Burisma. Of course, he's making tons of money, but this is a guy who suffered through drug addiction and he's had a lot of tragedy in his life and family is, you know, the kind of the traditional fail son, ne'er-do-well, as you might say. Mm -hmm. That's like very clear, but that doesn't mean he's going to be off limits in a presidential campaign. That's going to be, you know, you can only imagine the attack ads that are coming from the well, Republican Party. What, when, and what, what I was trying to get at, and I really wasn't conveying my thoughts as clearly as I should have, is that I don't know if it matters anymore. I, so many people have come into the studio to say, uh, wait to what, see what Donald Trump does to Joe Biden in the debate. Let's see what those attack ads are against Joe. And I'm like, the worst things you could say about uh, Hunter uh, Biden. Boy, do I have a, I keep wanting to call him Hunter Thompson. And I'm fighting that dyslexia <laughs> night and day, Miles. But the worst things you could say about Hunter Biden could be applied to Donald Trump. Well, and the Trump kids are off in Africa killing uh, elephants and posing with their tails. I mean, that's a true, true sickness. If you want to, like, see horrible people, look at the Trump sons. Yeah, so I just think the, the bar is so low with Donald Trump and that the, 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 all the rules are out the window. Mm -hmm. The public's been immunized to bad behavior, public bad behavior. Donald Trump uh, was, was elected... Uh, even the aftermath of the grab the women uh, video. So I just think I read, like I said, the Tea Party, the, they sent me that email talking about uh, Hunter Biden's, uh, the paternity suit. Uh, 
even though their president that they support was paying off women to be quiet about the affairs yeah. that he was having with them. So it's sort of like, who are you to say anything about Hunter? But I just so I'm thinking that all the things that are traditionally would work against Joe Biden in this particular election aren't that effective in the that age That might of be true, but I mean, look at the way that he responded when he was asked by a voter specifically <laughs> about, uh, about Hunter Biden, which is a completely understandable question to have, certainly reading any of the mainstream news of being like, hey, did your son, you know, was he getting a good deal because, you know, you helped him get this job? And, you know, Biden says you're a damn liar, challenges to push-up contest. And I keep <laughs> it's so, it's, it's, such, it's such disdain yeah. for the very people whose votes he's trying to win. I can't see that as like an effective way to respond to this scandal. I mean, that might be true that that's and won't be the attacks on him won't be so effective, but the way he's dealing with it is just showing complete disregard for any of these critiques and not coming up with any defense whatsoever and instead just challenging people to push up contests. I don't see that as like the uh, a way forward for a nominee in 2020. Yeah, no, it is very biz- bizarre behavior. It is indeed. But again, I- I'm not defending it. I'm just pointing out that things have changed. Uh, Donald Trump is always like threatening people and they say, you should take that guy out and beat him up and rough him up. And that's, it's, it's all, that's what I'm saying. It's like very Trump-like behavior where you just break the norm instead of saying to the person, like, I respect what you're saying. And the reality is that my son did nothing wrong. It's like, yeah, you want to go? I'll go <laughs> push up. It wasn't even a fight. It was a push-up concert. Yeah. So it's very bizarre behavior. And it's, it's like the age of bizarre behavior. And with the, the kind of candidate that Barack Obama was, in 2008 doesn't seem to be working. All the candidates who are sort of emulating Barack Obama uh, are not doing very well in this particular race. Yeah. So it's just like Donald Trump. Well, I don't think it's all, I don't think it all comes down to tone, though. I mean, if that was true, yeah, you could just have somebody, you know, you could have Howard Stern run as the Democrat or something, and he would be, you know, freak people out and get people, you know, excited and say all kinds of uh, you know, shocking things. That's not true. I think you know the, the number one thing the voters their number one issue is healthcare and who is trusted the most on healthcare in every poll by large margins is Bernie Sanders. I think that's the kind of you know those are the kind of metrics you should look at in terms of trying to predict who's going to be the best person to take on a candidate who is. We know what Trump is going to do. He's going to call. He's, you're right. He's going to take. I mean, he's going to attack Bernie like you know he would attack anybody else. It's not that there's going to be they're going to be insulated from these attacks. But if you're running on a very clear program and you have very moral values that people understand, and even if they don't initially you know agree with everything you're running on, they respect you and trust you. You're going to be in a way better position than if you're Joe Biden and you've been you know running on slashing you know, pensions and slashing Social Security throughout your life. You've been, you know, you've supported the Iraq war. You supported this bankruptcy bill, all stuff that's hurt the working class. I think it's going to be a much harder case to make that you're going to, you know, be helpful to the very voters that turned to Trump in 2016 in a general election. So that's, I think, the more important than the style or the tone. All right. I, I want to close with uh, a reference to a story that I'm obsessed with, but I realize that uh, uh, <laughs> uh, many of my guests and uh, maybe maybe many of my listeners are not obsessed with, and that is Michael Horwitz's report. Uh, he had, there was a hearing yesterday in Congress uh, where he talked about he's the Justice Department Inspector General, uh, and uh, he did uh, an investigation of the investigation, if you will, of, of the FBI and how they handled 
uh, their request to get uh, wiretapping permission on Carter Page, uh, on Carter Page and uh, launch an investigation into any connection between uh, Putin's operatives and uh, Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, and uh, it's a very interesting report. Uh, and it underscores many of the criticisms uh, that f- uh, lefties, my beloved lefties and civil libertarians uh, in Cook County and in the city of Chicago have been raising for years. Uh, and that is just the, the, the vast advantage a prosecutor has when going to a, a secret grand jury uh, to get an indictment uh, against a defendant. What are they? What's that standard line? You can indict a, a ham sandwich. Uh, the all everything is up against weighed against the defendant. Uh, the case could be shoddy. Uh, the, they could exaggerate whatever the defendant may have done wrong. Ignore whatever evidence there are that undercuts their main arguments, and the judge will give them what they want. Uh, I've had uh, 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 Leonard Goodman's been on this show, uh, who is Rob Blagojevich's lawyer, uh, talking about the case that they manufactured against uh, Rob Blagojevich as being unfair. So I'm very sympathetic to the things that Horowitz says, but the way it's played out, Miles, it's so baffling. It's like... All these Republicans are outraged. Where was that outrage? Where was that outrage when, like, when the FBI shot Fred Hampton while he was sleeping with the Chicago police backed by FBI? Where's been that outrage after one abuse of civil liberties after another? I remember when Michael Dukakis ran for president in 1988. George Bush mocked him. He said he was a card-carrying member of the ACLU. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I got Republicans up there in Washington, you know, waving the Horowitz report. Well, and the massive surveillance of all kinds of left-wing groups across the country. I mean, this has been going on for years and decades, and it's ongoing right now. It's not as if this is something from, you know, the past. This is, you know, what we're dealing with right now. I think that it, it does, it, it cracks some holes and all of the, you know, worship of the FBI that unfortunately was going on um, soon after the 2016 election that somehow thought that, you know, after after James Comey had, you know, p- pointed out, you know, we're going to reopen this investigation in Hillary Clinton days before the election, that because Trump hated Comey, that be- therefore the FBI was going to somehow put him in check and be some, you know, going to protect our democracy or our republic. I think it does throw that whole approach into question. And it shows the FBI is not, you know, your friend. They're, they're not the type of that this isn't an organization that is going to, you know, be, it's not like the ACLU. It's not, it, it's meant to uh, protect the current power structures and it's, you can call out all these issues and it doesn't have to be a partisan affair, you know? Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to take a deeper dive with this one. I think I'm bringing a letter uh, Goodman in the I studio. Think that's a to, yeah. Great idea. He's a, he's a super, super smart guy. I do want to talk about one thing in terms of like while this impeachment stuff is going on. I mean, you talked about this a little bit before, but you know, Trump just signed this executive order, um, uh, the other day and it, it's going to have a big impact most likely. And it's going to stifle free speech. And yet it's not getting tons of coverage because understandably the um, airwaves have been blanketed and he's, uh, you know, claiming that this is somehow this is going to be, you know, show his, his solidarity with the Jewish people. Um, this is an executive order that effectively, you know, lines up with the Israel lobby and that it wants to criminalize uh, all kinds of Palestine solidarity organizing, especially the type that exists on college campuses. 
um, by basically conflating any criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. And that's done through, you know, the New York Times reported it as basically defining Judaism as a nationality. But what we should pay attention to is on Saturday, Trump gave this um, really, why? I mean, this is something that would be top headlines if Donald Trump was not the president. On Saturday, he did. The, he went to this Florida conference of the Israeli American Council, which is a you know lobbying group, and he said literally, these are his words: "A lot of you are in the real estate business, mm-hmm. and there's you know largely Jewish audience, almost you know huge Jewish audience. You're brutal killers, not nice people at all. But you have to vote for me. You have no choice." That's, you know, one of the most kind of sick anti-Semitic statements you can imagine. And yet he's claiming, oh, I'm protecting the Jewish people by going forward with these executive orders. And I will say, you know, there's people like Dima Khalidi at Palestine Legal right now here in Chicago who are speaking out against this. There's a lot of people that are trying to make this a bigger deal, but it's kind of getting uh, covered over. And this is the kind of abuses that this president is is taking that, you know, people just aren't paying enough attention to. All right. Don't. Th- it's a shame we're bringing this up now because I could go on and on about this particular issue for an hour. We got PC sitting on deck. But let me just say this about that. Donald Trump, if he's not an anti-Semite, he plays to the worst kinds yeah. of anti-Semites. And his strategy all along uh, to, and I, I think it's targeted towards states with high concentration of Jewish voters, is to try to peel uh, Jewish voters away from the Democratic Party. Florida, he's thinking. Pennsylvania, he's thinking uh, to get that electoral college victory again. Uh, any way he can by playing to the worst fears uh, that Jewish people might have about the left. And uh, it's disgraceful. And particularly when he looks the other way at white nationalists marching through the streets of Virginia. And, and he had, I mean, look, this is somebody who had Steve Bannon and Sebastian Gorka working. These are open white nationalists. And it comes right after this horrific attack in Jersey City on a kosher deli that was a clearly anti-Semitic attack. I mean, this is really So there's some up. real problems we have in our country. And I've had this argument with uh, young Tom McNamee, who is the uh, editorial uh, board uh, chief. To Tommy here, Mack. Tommy Mack for the, uh, the, the Sun-Times. This gets into a larger issue. I'd love to talk about this with Peter Cunningham because he used to work at the Department of Education. So think about what I'm about to say, Peter. This gets into a larger issue of free speech on college campuses. And And that's a civil liberties issue. Well, it's a civil liberties issue. And the right has made that has has lumped the left. So this is so bizarre how this plays out, Peter. Follow me on this one and Miles. So when the right says that Ann Coulter has a fundamental First Amendment free expression right to go to any college campus she wants and insult people for their weight, for how they look, for their gender, for their their political affiliations, to make fun of them, to mock them, to malign them. She has, even if it offends them, the people who are offended are written off as snowflakes. And, but she has a First Amendment right, and if anybody protests her, they're... Um, well, and doxing people, too. I mean, calling people out as undocumented uh, immigrants. I mean, that's what's going on here. But flip the switch, and somebody gets on stage and rips Israel, well, that's, that's hurting people. That's, leading, that's anti-Semitism. You can't allow it. I have a lot of issues with the intolerance that college kids have toward Jews on the, on the issue of Israel. 
I think a lot of them dress up. It's disguised their political leanings with anti-Semitism. I do believe that's a legitimate issue. But I don't see how you can pick and choose which issues are exempted from free expression and which are not. It's totally political. And this is my problem with the right. They don't have a principal stand on anything. They don't have a principal stand on civil liberties. They're for civil liberties when it means you can uh, stick it to the FBI for investigating Donald John Trump, but they're cheering on. They're not for civil liberties when the Chicago police and the FBI crash into Fred Hampton's bedroom and gun him down, or when they're spying on mental health protesters on the south side of Chicago. That's right. So it's just like... It's really hard to have a, 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 a reasonable, rational debate these days. Miles, because don't feel like anybody has any principles. Yeah. It, these are just tactics and tools that you use to win an argument. Like, I want to win an argument against Peter Cunningham. Mm-hmm. I'll throw something at him. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm with you on this one. Yeah. Uh, I do think that Donald Trump was ap- to absolutely no good with that executive order. I agree with you 100%. Miles Conflassen from In These Times, thank you so much. Peter Cunningham is sitting very diligently on deck. We're we're going to bring them on, and we'll be right back after this. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu masters. social workers, psychologists, counselors. Um, We think that adequate services for special education. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. It's the butter cow, which has nine hearts to represent the nine essential nutrients in milk. That's right. It's made entirely out of butter, and, you know, it's a state fair tradition since at least 1922. Hey, everybody. What you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, 
P-I-A-N-I-S-T.com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. Boy, he loves that piano player. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Peter Cunningham in the studio. We call him PC. He's got his guitar here, folks. We're going to do a lot of political talk. Uh, a lot of the questions. I had all these questions for Peter, and uh, a lot of them are just the carryovers from the questions I had uh, for Miles, having to do with the state of the Democratic uh, the race for president, the Hillary Bernie fault line, the impeachment hearings, the horror witchery, all these things I've been talking about are on my mind these days. The civility. Peter worked for uh, Barack Obama uh, in the education department. Uh, so Barack Obama carried himself with a certain uh, decorum. It's totally out the window these days as I see it in politics. Want to get Peter's thoughts on that. Uh, some local issues as well. As well. He's very involved uh, in the police reform movement. Get his thoughts on what went down to the city council yesterday. But before, And he's going to play his guitar. He's, the, 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 Peter's got in a rock and roll band. He's the only centrist Democrat that knows how to play a bar chord. And he is... Uh, <laughs> uh, that's his claim to fame. And he's going to play guitar. I don't know if you guys have any requests. Uh, kick him on the, the Facebook page. Maybe he'll honor them. Uh, he's the human jukebox. He can play any song. Uh, D, you got an update for me? Absolutely, I do. My uh, request would be Van Halen. Anything Van Halen, I'm for. <laughs> I don't know he's a Van Halen guy. I think he's more like a 60s, 70s guy. Oh, okay. Just, All right. So yeah. I won't ask him if he's more of a Hagar, David Lee Roth kind of guy. I don't think he knows what you're talking about right well, now. He, he knows what I'm talking about. Come on. <laughs> Come on. He's PC. All right. We do have an update. It's a follow-up on the story about those 11 alderman who opposed Mayor Lori Lightfoot's budget a uh, while back. Mm. So yes, it's time for another episode of Ben's favorite, my favorite, and I've heard around town that it's Peter Cunningham's favorite <laughs> daily Chicago political soap opera. It's time for a mayor and her alderman. <laughs> a mayor and her alderman. All right. Ben, you've been watching the show lately, right? I, I've been watching it every day. It. Yeah, I love this, this show. show. Yeah. The following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times. And, of course, Fran the Woe Man Spielman. Mayor Lori Lightfoot on Thursday defiantly defended her decision to mm. use money from her newly created political action committee, it's also known as a PAC, to shame the 11 aldermen who dare to vote against her $11.6 billion budget by creating a website called ChicagoBudgetVotes.com and posting the alderman's name on the website. In case you weren't aware, yeah, the mayor did that. Alderman Raymond Lopez, been of which ward? 15. Oh, my God. He's a dork, guys. <laughs> he was one of the 11 aldermen who opposed the budget. He has argued that the mayor's website belittles legitimate concerns about the shaky nature of the mayor's budget and, quote, shines the light, no pun intended there, I'm sure, by the, uh, the alderman, shines the light on the true nature of her character. These are Ray Lopez's words, not mine. Being petty and vindictive, Raymond Lopez said. The mayor defended her action, asking, quote, since when is letting voters and residents know how aldermen voted bullying? That's just silly. We have an absolute right to make sure that people really understand who voted, why they voted, what they voted for. A lot of people cannot attend city council meetings. They may not have access to live streaming. We're providing an important service, and I stand by it. It's not about winning the vote. It's about making sure that people in this city have access to basic information about how their government functions. This is not a political exercise for me. This is about educating the public about 
what happened. All right. Well, I'm curious what Peter has to say about it. I'll start first. Uh, that's uh, First of all, let me just give a shout out to Ray Lopez. Uh, he has emerged as, as something of a watchdog. Why he's done it, what it motivates him, I don't know. And I really don't care. I do believe that there should be at least one or two people in the Chicago City Council under any mayor, Rahm Emanuel, uh, Richard M. Daly, Richard J. Daly, or Lori Lightfoot, uh, who are willing to stand up and say, I disagree with this mayor. Here's the reasons why I disagree with this mayor. It, I feel that uh, one of the weaknesses of Chicago is this notion that we all have to be on the same page, and that stifles creativity and dissent, which are very important, I think, in any democracy. Uh, that said, I think so much has been made of that. Look, the, the, the reality is that she took that vote, and she set up that website, and it's a very tilted way it's phrased. So like, if you go to that website, you got to know that you're reading Lori propaganda. It says something along the lines of, uh, I made the vote for truth, justice, and the American way by voting with Lori Lightfoot. And then you click on and you see how your alderman voted. And anybody who goes there has got to be able to realize that this is propaganda. Or it'll say, uh, I voted against everything that's great in humanity uh, when I voted against Lori Lightfoot's budget. And you click on and you see Ray Lopez voted no. So I think in I think it's overkill on Lori's part, personally. I don't think it's going to really help her uh, anyway, uh, because I think most people could see through this. So that's my humble opinion in this. Young Peter Cunningham, what's your opinion? Well, I think people uh, who kind of run for office with sort of a white hat on, about they're going to change things and turn on the light and everything like that. And people are shocked when that turns out that they're politicians, that they do what politicians do. But everybody does that, okay? I mean, if you're going to win... And you're going to win again, and you're going to have the majority you need to to govern. You got to play politics. Anybody who thinks not is, I think, being naive. I think people are a little surprised how serious she is. I have to just say, full disclosure, my wife attended that PAC uh, uh, luncheon, uh, so she actually helped fund this website. What? What? How is that even legitimate? I mean, I appreciate you doing the full disclosure, but your wife has her own life. You know? She does. <laughs> I mean, good God. Yeah, you know? she, she was supporting Lori Lightfoot when I was working for Bill Daly. Yeah. So you're, in some ways, your wife has a lot more sense than you do uh, and your kids. But uh, By the way, speaking of my kids, today's my daughter's 30th birthday. 30 years ago today, I became a father. So just a shout out to her, Seema Cunningham. She's on tour with her band, but... Otherwise, she would be here in the studio playing with you. Yeah, we were going to have her here today, but she's, uh, Maybe next she's still on the road. All right, and happy birthday, Seema. Pre, uh, uh, great uh, musician, Seema, coming here. All right, uh, so, yeah, so, yeah, people were a little surprised uh, that uh, you run. This is a shock to people in the city of Chicago. They shouldn't be, but uh, uh, a campaign is one thing. And uh, ruling the city or governing the city, whatever you want to call it, is something completely different allegedly yeah people used to separate governing and politics i think they've crossed over but i think it also feeds into a narrative that i think laurie should be careful of mayor lightfoot i should say sorry uh she should be careful of i think the way the eddie johnson story played out uh looked a little harsh um you can have an opinion about whether he deserved to be fired or whether she should have just let him go or uh either way he's gone uh and he 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 went in a um tough circumstance and i think that she's just got to be a little careful that people don't see her as uh, a little vengeful on stuff like this. Well, we talked a lot about Eddie Johnson. Uh, I called it Eddie Gate last week when that story was breaking. Uh, and uh, the full story obviously hasn't come out yet. 
Um, I, the skeptic in me, Peter, I have to admit, confess, had a little trouble believing uh, the timeline that Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Lightfoot, laid out. Um, the way she presented it, she like woke up one day and read this report from the inspector general and realized that he had lied to her uh, about three months after he had lied to her, and she immediately called a press conference uh, to denounce him and fire him. I just have a little hard time believing that, that she just learned it that then. I thought maybe the timing was a little selective, uh, that there were some political games going on with that as well. What was your reaction? Yeah, I just didn't like the way it went down. I think this guy came into the job um, at a very tough time for the city right after the release of the Kwan McDonald uh, video, um, and we're trust with the police and the community was at an all-time low. Morale in the department was at an all-time low. Uh, the year after that video came out, we had something like 760 murders. So the homicide rate spiked way up. One, one theory was that the police were just sort of afraid to, you know, to really do their job because they didn't think that anybody was going to support them. Uh, and uh, it was just a tough time. He came in, and I think he, uh, you know, I think he did a decent job given what he was uh, asked to do. He didn't drive reform, uh, but the mayor, you know, Mayor Emanuel didn't didn't push reform as hard as uh, Lori, uh, Mayor Lightfoot. Again, Mayor Lightfoot claimed she would, and I think she still got a lot to prove on that front as well. I mean, I'm I'm hopeful. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's great that she put some money into the budget for violence prevention. That's an issue I work on. So again, full disclosure. But, uh, you know, if we're really going to get this murder rate, we're closing in on 500 murders this year. So that's still too high. Mm -hmm. it's, it's three times higher than Los Angeles. It's six times higher than New York on a per capita basis. You know, we talked about this the last time we were in your show. What would you think, what should be done, in your humble opinion, immediately uh, to take steps to bring that down? I think you just have to invest a lot more in the community. I think that you know, police can't do it alone, and I think you really need to empower a lot more people to be part of the solution. And right now, I think we're still underinvesting in those kind of community-based programs that give kids better alternatives, that intervene with kids at risk, that give them a chance for, you know, a job. I mean, these guys have no shot. They have no chance. They struggled in school. The gang life came along. It was a chance for them to make a little money, put some money in their pocket that every 15-year-old in the world wants, right? Every 15-year-old wants a little money to buy stuff and uh next thing you know they're in the criminal justice system and they don't have a chance and they come out and who's going to hire them so what did we, why do we expect them to not go back to that world and i think we just need to have a paradigm shift in the way we treat folks like that mm -hmm. i agree and i and that was one thing i was disappointed with Lori lightfoot's budget uh not more money for there wasn't enough money i think for uh, mental health care mental health facilities uh and it, I mean, it, it, as that budget was being voted on, uh, Peter, there was a case in the paper, I talked about it uh, uh, last week, uh, where a, men, a mentally uh, dis, disabled person, mentally ill person, got into it uh, uh, with a cop, spit at the cop. I don't know if you follow this. The cop mm. took him down hard. Hard, and, yeah. uh, and so now there's the issue of uh, whether it was police brutality. Uh, but again, I, I've been pointing out, talking about this for eight years, like, why are the police the first on the on the scene all the time dealing with people who are having like breakdowns and why why doesn't the city have a different approach to dealing uh, with people who are clearly not stable at that moment? Yeah, I mean, I I looked at that whole story as well. I mean, we had something like twenty seven shootings that weekend, and the question I had asked is, 
the guy was allegedly confronted for drinking in public. Why is that uh, the highest and best use of our police officers? And if he was down on the south side, communities that have a lot of violence and everything, and I wonder why, why do they confront this guy? Now, maybe he uh, uh, was behaving er erratic, uh, erratically, and as you say, shouldn't there be somebody else there to help him? So yeah, you got to invest in that. And she's taking a lot of heat. The mayor's taking a lot of heat for not investing enough in mental health, for not investing enough in violence prevention, for not investing enough in homelessness. And I think she's legitimately pushing back and saying, look, I inherited an $838 million deficit. And the fact is I've put money into some of the things I promised. All right. now so wait, I give her some credit. If you were Alderman Peter Cunningham yeah. uh, from the 51st Ward in the city of Chicago, would you have voted for the mayor's budget? Sure. Why do you say that? Because I think she did a pretty good job. I mean, I would have liked to see more money for violence prevention, but again, I'm working on that issue. But no, I think she did a really good job. And I think that, uh, uh, I mean, I would have voted for it also if she raised taxes. I mean, I wouldn't have been against a small tax increase to help uh, build out some of the things that she said she would do, whether it's violence prevention or mental health. She needed an extra $20 million, whatever it is, I think. Now, I know taxes are up. They're up a lot, especially in, like, north side neighborhoods like mine. I'm in Logan Square. But, yes, I would have voted for a budget. Uh, and uh, so you wouldn't, you, you uh, do you think there's ever a time when you would have voted no against the mayor's budget? Against any mayor or her? Yeah, uh, well, this is her first budget, but any mayor? Oh, I don't know. I can't remember all the budgets. The question is usually put to me. Would you ever vote yes for a budget? Yeah. And I <laughs> I generally say, I just would vote no just to let them know I'm breathing and I'm alive and I'm here. And, and of course, it's impossible to think of anybody like me who would ever get elected uh, mayor in the first place. All right. This is a story that relates to this general theme we're talking about, Peter. It's in today's paper, Fred Spielman uh, in the Sun-Times. Alderman, $1.2 million settlement to family of men who died in police custody is hush money, in quotes, uh, for gangs. Uh, General Godinez uh, died in police custody in July 2015 at the age of 24. Uh, Raymond Lopez, de uh, Dennis was just alluding to in the Alderman of the 15th Ward, Brighton Park, back of the yards. High crime areas have been struggling with a lot of violence, a lot of shootings, a lot of murders. And uh, Ray, Ray Lopez has been very upfront about uh, confronting uh, gang members in his uh, neighborhood, uh, standing with police uh, to try. As, as he should be. But... So would I have voted for that? Yeah. Yes, I would have voted for that. I mean, I think this is a guy The settlement. Who, the settlement. Yes. Though. This is a guy who died in police custody. Mm -hmm. Like, that much we know. It's not in dispute. We don't know exactly what he did. We heard there's cocaine involved. We don't know exactly what he did. He, we heard that he was resisting police. All part of the job that goes along with being a police officer. But what he did was he died in police custody. And so... To say, in this case, I'm not going to vote for it, is to say, I'm going to make a judgment that, in this case, killing this guy in police custody was okay. Now, maybe the autopsy found that he died from the cocaine overdose. I don't know. It didn't sound like it. it sounded like he died from... The police had the... Uh, one of the police officers... stepped had, on him. Had his foot on his neck. Yeah. So, you know, I thought we were trying to get past. Now, this is 2015, so it's a, it's a few years ago. It's before the Laquan uh, video came out, which is sort of when the world said, OK, we really have to start to reform the department. Now, the incidents last weekend where the guy threw the guy to the ground made me think maybe they could need to accelerate that work of reforming the uh, police because the rank and file still maybe haven't started to change. You know, I mean, that was a really scary, uh, scary takedown. I'm surprised the guy was okay. Um, 
he he did have to go to a hospital. Yeah. But I think ultimately he's 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 you know he's doing okay. But still, I would not want to make the judgment that in this case it's okay that he died in police custody. So yes, I would have voted for it. It's a very tough. And, yeah, and and which is not to say that you know Lopez and others aren't making a good point. We need to clean up our streets. We have gang problems, and yes, we expect law enforcement to enforce the law. But I think we just need to start by having a standard of use of force that's very, um, uh, you know, progressive and, uh, and, and cautious. I mean, you know, use of force is supposed to be a last option. It's not supposed to be something they just do because you're insulted or you're annoyed or you're pissed or whatever. It's got to be the last option. Uh, and in this particular case, uh, one of the police officers had his uh, foot on uh, the neck. It, I think what rubs people the wrong way, uh, and, and I think this is what Raylo was uh, responding to, uh, is the notion that somehow or other uh, a, a gang member's family would profit from that person's uh, lifestyle and uh, it just rubs him the wrong way that $1.2 million of taxpayers' money is going to this guy, uh, or to his family. The man is dead. Uh, and so I can, I can understand mm-hmm. what's motivating uh, Ray Lopez. I agree with you that police have to change their tactics or we're just going to perpetuate these same old problems that yeah. have been existing in Chicago since, since the last century. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair... It's a fair issue to consider. I mean, was it too much? I don't know. Was, how do you put a price on the life of, of somebody? I, I, I don't know how to do that. And I don't know how they arrived at that number. Uh, you know, I, I see all kinds of numbers. I see a guy spends his life in prison, he gets $40 million. Next guy spends his life in prison, he gets $1 million. I, Like, I don't know how any of this stuff is calculated. And uh, Or did, what was the Laquan case? Did they settle that for $5 million, was it, I think? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know why why Laquan was five and this was 1.2. I don't understand it. Yeah. Well, and, and as uh, uh, the aldermen are pretty much told, I remember that this was an issue in the Laquan McDonald case. Uh, the aldermen are pretty much told uh, by the lawyers for the city, uh, this is purely a dollar and cents thing. Uh, and if you uh, go to court, uh, you could end up paying $40 million. We think this is a good deal at $5 million. So it's $35 million. The case disappears. Right. Let's it's, just get rid of this case. Right. I think it's a judgment from the lawyers that the chances of get, having a much bigger settlement are higher. Therefore, you do $5 million for Laquan McDonald and you do $1 million here. I mean, again, it's kind of uh, amoral to think about how these calculations are made. But I suppose someone has to do it. I think we're, what, about $500 million in the last couple of years yeah. of police settlements? Yeah. So it's, it's real money. Yeah, it's real money, and it adds up. All right, let's go back uh, to one of the topics we were talking about with Miles. love to get your uh, thoughts on it. Uh, it had to do uh, with the edict that uh, the executive order that Donald Trump uh, signed having to do with the education department and how they deal with uh, uh, accusations of anti-Semitism on college campuses. Uh, and there would be punishment if they, uh, if the Trump administration feels as though the, the university was to- too tolerant of anti-Semitism. You worked in the education department. Uh, yeah, we never did anything like this. I mean, uh, like everything Donald Trump does, from my point of view, it's it, it's um, it's not grounded in legalistics. <laughs> it, you know, it's not grounded in the law. It's not grounded in the proper role of you know the federal government. It's not consistent with anything he's done before there's you know there's 
extreme hypocrisy. And, I, you know, the, the sort of prevailing dynamic that's really kind of um, shaken everybody is that um, outrage politics, it, it just never stops with Trump, but it's not working. Outrage politics isn't really working. We, we have a, a, a new reason to be outraged every single day. And it doesn't work. I mean, they, they, what, what, what I think we need to be reminding people of is that, um, you know, Trump's economics, you know, the stuff he's really doing is actually really, really bad for the country. You know, giving trillion-dollar tax cuts at a time when a lot of people are, you know, not keeping up with health care costs is really bad for the country, really bad for the middle class. This is, this is the one downside to impeachment. I think the Democrats had to impeach. They had to impeach, given what he did. But we're not talking about economic injustice, which at the end of the day is much more of a voting issue. Well, before, let's, let's get to uh, uh, flesh out what you said. Flesh out what you said. Uh, they had to impeach. Why do you say that? Because I think what he did uh, truly undermines the foundations of democracy. The idea that you could use public dollars as an inducement to get a foreign government to launch an investigation of your political opponent is, I think, you know, literally shaking the foundations of what this country is about. Those are our dollars. You're using it to get a foreign country to investigate your political opponent. Not even about, just announced they were investigating. We don't even know if they were investigating. Like just everything announce. Donald does, just just announce it. That's yeah. all you need to do. I don't really care if there's any follow through. Yeah, just announce it. Right. And then I'll tweet about it. Yeah. Right. He announced the other day that we've had the, we have the cleanest air and water ever. He just said it. You know, this is the guy who gutted the EPA. He just announced that we have the cleanest air and water ever. How did I miss that? Yeah, Let like, me celebrate by having a drink of water. Yeah, it's incredible. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, the water's delicious. And it's clean. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was it's just so blatant they couldn't ignore, uh, ignore it. Seems like it to me. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I know what I read. I know what I hear and see every day. I listen to the testimony of these folks who, you know, who I trust, who are... You know, serious people. Some of them are Republicans. Some of them are Democrats. Most of them are, you know, career service employees. And I met a lot of them when I worked in Washington, and I had great respect for them. You know, they were smart people. They were, they, you know, they often said, you know, one of them said to me once, "Look, you work for the president. We work for the Constitution." You know, I mean, his point was that you guys come and go. You know, we were what's called the political appointees. Mm -hmm. President of the United States has about 5,000 political appointees across all the agencies. I was one of them. In, in Department Ed, there were like 120 or something. I was one of them. Our job is policy, right? But their job is to enforce the law, carry out the law, you know, and it's, it's, it's a slightly different job. We, we rely on them to execute some of the policies, but, you know, this guy pointed out to me, a really, really great guy, that we answer to a higher, a higher power than you know the president. Wow. We answer to the Constitution. And so you. So I trust those folks who came in. They testified, you know, put their name out there, knowing that they'd be hammered and attacked by uh, Republicans, attacked by Trump. And you know what they said is this is unprecedented. We've never had anything like this. Mm -hmm. And so as best I can understand it, I'm not a constitutional expert. This is uh, an abuse of power. I don't know what else to call it. And so to not to allow it to go, go, go forward. And I think there could be negative political consequences for Democrats. You know, there's, we flipped 40 Republican seats last time, I think, in, you know, districts that Trump won. And uh, 
broadly speaking, support for impeachment is only about 47 versus 45 against. Yeah. So in those red districts that are with Democratic Congress people, you know, it's probably a majority are against impeachment. And these guys are going to have to be, take a vote on that. And my guess is um, Speaker Pelosi will allow some of them to uh, vote, you know, or at least not criticize them for voting against it. No, you, you said it right the first time. She will allow them to do You said it right the first time. Don't <laughs> okay. clean up what you said. All right, uh, all right. That is great. That's, that's how a leader in Congress... That's how you keep your majority. Yes. Which is a big part of the job. Yes. Because if you don't keep your majority, think of how powerless we'd be but for Nancy Pelosi. She is, by the way, my hero at the moment. You're loving Nancy Pelosi. Oh, my God. <laughs> she is my hero. And I, I Why do you see, say that? Oh, she's just... She's just running a, a, a logical, sensible, politically smart, honest, you know, hard-hitting uh, counterpoint to Trump. And, you know, at a time when so many other people are struggling to counter this guy, she's got it. She knows what she's doing, and she's, she's boxing him in. All right, so let, let, let me bring you in on one of the great debates that's going on on my show. I bring everybody in, we ask them to say, how long should the Democrats allow this proceeding to continue. There are those who say, get it over with fast, uh, so you get the vote down, so you know you're going to lose in the Senate. He's going to be, uh, he's going to walk. Uh, and so, therefore, it won't be an issue in uh, November so much. So with those swing uh, districts that you were just alluding to, and there are, though, others who say, nah, keep it going. Let's Straight embarrass Trump. No, I'm, I'm in the first camp. I think... Um you know, I think that the, the narrow approach was the right approach. I understand that there's a lot of progressives who are upset about that. They wanted to throw with the kitchen sink at him. I think that this was the right approach. This is lock solid. This is, um, you know, clearly a violation of his oath, at least it seems so to me. And I think they have the vote this week or next week, and they go home. And then the Republicans can do what they want to throw it out. It's their moment. It's their day. It goes to the Senate. There's no question, Mitch. Um, Mitch McConnell is going to run that the way he wants to. And, you know, that's just the reality of it. We don't have the power over there to acquit. No, that's true. And I'm a, by the way, as you know, uh, full disclosure, since we're all doing full, I'm a string it out guy. Uh, but, you are. You, oh, think, totally. you think we should just string it right up to election day? Well, and, and yes. And I got a, something else for you. Believe it or not, I think Donald Trump agrees with me. And this is something that I've been watching. Uh, Jim Coogan, a shout out to you, or a lawyer who comes on the show all the time, who's so been sending me uh, articles uh, to this point. Donald Trump seems to think that it's in his best interest to have the show trial. I and, know, his fundraising's up, <laughs> you know. So I think he wants to string it out. And uh, the articles that Jim has been sending me are very interesting, uh, Peter, because there is a strategic difference between Mitch McConnell, who's more of the line, believe it or where you are, let's get this over with fast, it's a distraction, it's going to hurt my, when Mitch McConnell's thinking of all his senators who have to run for re-election uh, in November, let's get this over with now, and Trump is like, uh-uh, let's, let's make it loud, let's make it noisy, let's counterattack, uh, and so Trump, uh, I think he likes it, so I'm starting to think this thing may have a life of its own in ways that I can't predict, Peter, that we, you know, it may be easy for Nancy Pelosi to say, all right, let's get this over with fast. Or Mitch McConnell say, let's get this over with fast. But there's forces out there that they don't control that may drag it on. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels to me like one of these stories that the Twitter world and the hyper-involved world is more into than the broader general public. 
I don't think the broader general public wakes up every day and says, what's the latest with impeachment? I do think they wake up every day and say, how's my job? And can I pay my bills? And how much, you know, I don't have any money to send my kid to college. I think they say those things every day. And so I just think that that's what the Democratic candidates running for president should be talking about. I don't think, you know, they're really not talking about impeachment that much. It's interesting. And they're the ones who are looking at polls every day. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And they're not talking about impeachment. They're talking about, you know, bread and butter issues. And that's good. Uh, so I think um, the speaker understands that and says, OK, we're going to do our job. I mean, on the same day, read all these articles yesterday about at 9 o'clock in the morning, they announced the articles of impeachment. Yeah. And at 10 o'clock in the morning, they yeah. announced the new trade deal. So it's like, you know, she's like trying to get the work done. Yeah. And I like that narrative. They've sent 250 bills over to Mitch McConnell. He hasn't acted on a single one of them. We're doing our job. This is what we were paid to do. And if you want more of this, elect Democrats. Elect, yeah. you know, give us the Senate. So, uh, well, uh, to use your past arguments against yourself, I'm listening to you. What you're talking about, I remember the. I think the last time you were going to show you, you said this on the air or off the air, uh, probably on the air, uh, that if Donald John Trump had been a conventional president and come in with an infrastructure bill with this economy, he'd be well on his way uh, to uh, reelection. Absolutely, and, uh, he'd be cutting ribbons all cutting, over the place. Yeah, and he. It's the unconventionality of Donald Trump uh, with this economy, because basically the economy is working for an incumbent president. You know, if you were running a Democrat, if you were running uh, Barack Obama's campaign right now, you'd be saying the, the yeah. 110 uh, months of growth. Yeah. You, three and a half percent unemployment. Yeah. Yeah. And so to, stock market through the roof. So when I hear that, I'm like. Well, it seems like the advantage of the economy is to Donald Trump. The disadvantage to Donald Trump is his behavior. So let's accentuate as much as we can. So this, don't make it about the economy. Don't make it about make it about Donald John Trump and how weird he is and how the wacky texts he puts out and how he's fighting absolutely everybody and how he was shaking down the president of Ukraine and and how he's like intimidating witnesses and how he won't comply with subpoenas that that Congress is I think so but then I go back to what I said before it just seems like outrage isn't working we're outraged every day <laughs> and it's like it's just not working now I mean uh, now you could argue that his approval rating has been underwater he's been around 40 almost his entire presidency mm -hmm. I, I think you know except to January 2017 for a day he was at about 45 or so um, yeah, one day I remember that. He was so happy. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah. explain that. If we have this economy and his approval rating is down so low, why is that? You know, is it, you know, one theory I've heard is that um, more and more, especially uh, like uh, uh, white, you know, working class women are just exhausted by him, just, just, just sick of the everyday battles. And they're swing voters, you know, they, they, they went to him thinking, the Democratic Party hadn't been good for them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe some of them followed their husbands there. I don't know. Maybe some of them, a lot of them, you know, are single moms. They're just voting. You know, they 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 they, they bought some of his promises that he was somehow going to remember them at a time when maybe they felt the Democratic Party hadn't remembered them. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're they're. I think they're moving back. They're moving back in big numbers. They're seeing someone like Biden and say, "This guy's always understood what we were about," and you know. Um, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, you know, they're all talking about economic issues. All right, let me, let's get to that before we take a break and bring on, you on with your guitar. Uh, I, Bernie Sanders uh, and the centrists, 
once again, with uh, Hillary's comments, Hillary Clinton's comments on the Howard Stern show last week, brought that old fight out in the open again from the 2016 fight. Uh, do you think that's a problem for the Democrats, this rift between the left and the center? You know, I suppose it is. I mean, it's not a great thing. We're supposed to, you know, at some point come together. And the argument she's making is we never really came back together after the primary. You know, you sort of still hurt me. And, you know, there was a um, there was a third party candidate, Jill Stein. And Jill Stein, I think, by most analyses, took, uh, you know, more votes from Hillary. Took enough votes from Hillary that uh, it cost her, you know, the election in some states. But, you know, Trump lost more, three times as many votes to um, the Libertarian candidate, Gary, Gary Johnson. Yeah, so, so you know, third party, fourth party candidates, it's part of, you know, it's a fact of life these days. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm tired of Hillary finding one reason after another. It was James Comey. It was Jill Stein. It was, you know, whatever. It was her. It was her mistakes. It was her campaign's mistakes. They did not stay focused on the Midwest, on the Rust Belt. And that's where they lost. So if anybody thinks there's another lesson in here, I think they're wrong. The lesson was stay focused on that base. Get those Rust Belt voters out. And give them a reason to vote for you. That's, that's what I believe. Words I thought would never come out of my mouth. I agree with you. Peter Cunningham and on that. Words, <laughs> words I never thought would come out of your mouth either. <laughs> I agree oh. with you 100% on that one. Uh, blaming everybody and everything other than the faulty strategy that ignored the... Th- three states that were absolutely key to the Democrats, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Yeah, so, so just, you know, stop talking about all this other stuff. All right, I agree with that one, uh, 100% PC. Sticks around long enough, I'm going to start agreeing with them. Uh, we're going to take a break. we give Pete time to set up, get his guitar out, uh, play a few songs for us uh, when we return. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Tony Preckwinkle, in in a series of these forums and debates, I've counted uh, some of your uh, questioners have had to ask four or five times. The Ben Jarofsky Show is supported by Northwestern University's part-time master's program in literature and liberal studies. Students learn from dynamic and diverse faculty as they build advanced skills for critical analysis, writing, and research. Evening classes are held on Northwestern's Evanston and Chicago campuses. The spring quarter application deadline is January 15th. Learn more at sps.northwestern.com. Edu slash masters. Hey, welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun Times. Mr. Jarofsky, take us home. And we'll do Peter Cunningham in the studio, political strategist, political consultant, uh, and we've been discussing all kinds of political issues of the day. He's also a singer, a guitar player, has his own band. Uh, and uh, the, he comes in the show. I force him, I twist his arm. Next time he comes in, I'm going to ask him to bring one of his kids because his kids are accomplished musicians in their own right, very talented. Uh, we'll have the whole Cunningham family. It'll be like the Von Trapp family, only to be the Cunningham family. Uh, Von Trapp is an allusion to something that none of our millennials know. Dee, do you have an update before me before I go back to Peter? Uh, 
I think our listening audience is ready to hear PC. Let it rip on that guitar. Uh, we have one request, Rage Against the Machine. Yeah, so Rage <laughs> Against the Machine. PC says next time he's going to learn that, and he's going to play it when he's here in the studio. All right, before you get started, give folks... Uh, you have a concert coming up. Tell folks about it. Yeah, so um, I have a band called Bread and Butter Band. My uh, musical tastes and my political tastes are pretty closely aligned there. And um, uh, we have a gig at a place called The Hungry Brain. It's on uh, it's on Belmont right near Western. And it's a week from tomorrow. So Friday the 20th starts at 9 o'clock. And if you like classic rock and blues, come on out for a little... Uh, Holiday fun. So anyway, this What's is the a, name of the bar again. Uh, the Hungry Brain. Brain. B R A I N. Yeah, gotcha. yeah. It's a great club. They do a lot of jazz there also, but they let us in once in a while. So, All right. so this is a song I wrote years and years ago. I um, I've been inspired by lots of different songwriters. You know, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Neil Young, Richard Thompson, and then Bob Dylan, of course. And this is kind of like my Bob Dylan song. It's called "I'm Just Like You." Well, I won't hold you down, my friend I won't hold you back I won't try to rob you blind Get you hooked on crack I only want to hold you Whisper in your ear It don't mean I'm lonely It don't mean I'm queer It's just my way of saying, babe Had your troubles too Maybe you don't know it yet Baby, I'm just like you Well, I ain't no one special wouldn't be if I could. I'd rather be a lumberjack in the forest chopping wood. You won't find my face in pictures or my name in magazines. You won't see me on the TV selling designer jeans. I'm every man, I'm no one. I'm anonymous, it's true. If you hold the light up to my face, you'll see I'm just like you. I'm a man of the people, you know. I've been burned by sidewalk pushes, I've been stung by men of war. Handcuffed by a southern cop, tried by jailhouse law. I've been held up, shot up, hung out, strung out, ridiculed and spit on. Drawn and quartered in the mind of a judge who claims to sit on. The exalted bench of justice, where he keeps his robe and scales. And he sleeps all through the night, on a king-sized bed of nails. I'm just like you, I'm just like you I suffered and I sinned I'll only hang around long enough Till my sails fill up with wind I ain't got no answers I got a message for your ma Tell her I'd like to meet her soon Don't bring along your pa We'll have a good time Chasing rainbows when we're blue I know we'll get along just fine Baby, I'm just like you That was straight out of Bob Dylan. Oh my God! Even the the thing about the uh, the lumberjack chopping wood—that's something Dylan would say. Even though I don't think Bob Dylan's ever touched <laughs> an axe or anything. Oh no, he uh, he. I had a job in the Great North Woods. Yeah, working as a cook for a for spell. spell. Yeah, and I was in. Um, Tangled up in Tangled blue. blue. Very good. Wow, yeah. Then the, the axe fell, and then I had to go down to New Orleans and work on a shrimp boat or something like that. Uh, that's very good. Uh, I'm just like you. What's the second? We're going to do a second song, were you? Uh, I can if you want. Yeah, come, come on, on man. Another one. Yeah, Put PC to work. Yeah, man, come on. He's got All the right. ties. He's wearing a tie and everything. All right, well, this song is another song I wrote. It's um, It was inspired by my honeymoon, which was down in a place called Belize in uh, 1990 and um, 
there was this bar down there called the Sandbar, and we used to go down to the Sandbar every evening. We were, we were staying in a little shack on the beach, uh, you know, and uh, in the Sandbar were all these, like, old hippies. This is, like, 1990, and these folks looked like they kind of left Woodstock, and they just immediately got in a, a boat from Woodstock and <laughs> went, to went straight to <laughs> Belize and hadn't been heard from since, and there they were. So it's called uh, Belize. the sandbar he's waiting keeping time with his drum waiting for another victim who will treat him to a rum and he talks like he's crazy he got something new to say he will promise you the world and more If you will help him through Help him through the day Luscious Lena, she's laughing As she offers you a toke and she doesn't seem to worry No one else gets her joke <laughs> She ain't one to be low down She's got a million dollar heart She's known happiness and sadness She can't tell them She can't tell them apart have gone away and the locals quit complaining <laughs> they've run out of things to say except the man with the drum in his hand luscious lena and the staff you can find them at the sandbar every night they're always good for Always good for a laugh They're always good for a laugh R.I.P.C. Luscious Lena at the Sandbar. Always good for a laugh. Oh, very good. Uh, uh, remembering the details of the people he met back in Belize in 1990. Long time you've been married, Peter. Yeah, man. Uh, good stuff. The young man, Peter, will be uh, performing one more time. December 20th. I wrote this down, but now I can't remember. Oh, Friday, December 20th at the Hungry Brain. Uh, Bread and Butter Band is the name of his band. You'd be doing covers as well as your originals, correct? Yeah, we do mostly covers. We just do classic rock stuff, a lot of blues, and then we sneak in a few originals just 
just for fun. All right, now. Uh, get people to dance and have fun. I will uh, close with this. You made a reference uh, to a toke and a joke in that last song, and a toke obviously is a toke of some reefer, some marijuana, and uh, uh, this exposes more about me than anyone else in the world what I'm about to say. For years, I was crusading for the uh, legalization of marijuana, and now that it's legal, I'm like mad at everything, the way they're doing it, and all the rich guys getting all the money, and... It's, you know, the poor people getting frozen out of it. It's everything that's wrong with America today, Peter Cunningham. Right. I actually um, uh, uh, was approached by an African-American lawyer who's bidding on licenses who is looking for owners. uh, And I hooked him up with some people I know who maybe could find people from the neighborhoods who might want to work in that. So I think it's, uh, it's important. The Tribune story wrote about the first round of licenses, not a single person of color yeah. among them. So it's a problem. And, you know, if, if it's a real industry and it's going to make money, we've got to make sure people have opportunities to participate. Absolutely. But isn't that just the way it goes in it, this world, uh, man? Yes, it always goes like this. <laughs> I mean, God dang. And it's always like afterwards. Like they, what, what, um, what uh, they just announced, they're getting rid of merit promotions. So remember why merit promotions were started yeah. in the police department? Yes. They were started to, to achieve diversity because we couldn't get diversity through the normal processes. Yeah, so the tests started, were rigged. Yeah, so then they started merit promotions and they were rigged. So what's the answer? Yeah, what is the answer? I think that, you know, you have to have merit promotions and they got to be, you know, they have to meet certain standards and you got to have an idea of what merit means and you got to define it and you got to prove it up and stop doing it the wrong way, which is to just hire your friends and promote your friends. That's what they do. And don't you think there's a greater value? What I'm about to say is so antediluvian. It's so 60s. I'm almost embarrassed to say it. But don't you think there's a greater value to the city of Chicago to have an integrated police department? That you could do everything you can to make sure that the cops, blacks and whites, are working together on the police force? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, I, and, and for whatever reason, you know, for whatever reason, the old system led to this. And then the new system leads to something else that's bad. It's one of the realities about public policy. Every public policy has a potential downside and a potential upside. And it's, you're fundamentally relying on people to do the right things. And so... So where do you think it's going to head uh, with with this particular issue, the merit uh, hiring issue? Where do you think it's going to head? How it's going to head? I feel like it's just going to repeat the same cycle. Like for some reason or other, people of color aren't going to get promoted and then they'll turn around and say, OK, well, we have to do something about that. And you have it in every field. You have it in teaching. I mean, 80 something percent of teachers are white. I mean, almost all of them are female. Seventy percent, 75 percent of them are female. And over 50% of the students are students of color. Wait, tell me, is this in the city of Chicago or nationwide? Nationwide. Nationwide. But it's a problem in Chicago, too. It's disproportionately um, white compared to the student population. And, you know, most studies show that uh, having teachers uh, of color work with kids of color, having at least exposure is a good idea. I met a teacher, a black male teacher years ago, who was trained to teach like eighth grade in high school. And a principal hired him and said, I'm going to put you in kindergarten. And the guy said, why? And he says, because I want those kids to see the black teacher when they're six years old, not to wait until they're 14 before they finally see a black male teacher. It was an interesting story, right? That, that this principal said, it's more important for me that my kids see a black male teacher young, mm-hmm. even though they may not get another one till eighth grade. Yeah. But at least they had one early on, as opposed to thinking there's no such thing as a black male teacher. Well, I, I could uh, echo that story 
Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I had a black male teacher. Until I got to sixth grade, I'd never, I'd never met any black people. I grew up in Rhode Island, and it was just all white people. Uh, and my family moved to Evanston, and suddenly I saw black people and Jews. It was like, wow, my world changed. Yeah. Uh, but my, my sixth grade teacher was a black man, and it's one of the most profound impacts uh, that, you know, on my life. I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. And I think it's... Imagine being a black kid who never sees one. Yeah. Right? And it's it's true all over the place. It's and uh Well the other You know, listen, I, I, and and it's not to say that white teachers can't teach black kids. It's not to say that at all. It's just to say that we have to work harder to be diverse. And diversity to me is an important goal in the police department. And they gotta figure out how to do it because they're trying to build trust with the community and uh, you know, every time you see a police incident and you see a, a black person who was abused in some way or other and you see five white cops, you think, okay, maybe if there was a black cop, at least one of them, <laughs> who knows? Maybe it'd have a, I don't know, maybe you'd have a different outcome, maybe not. But, you, you know, you, you just got to succeed at this. It's just too important. And then going back to the issue of marijuana— uh, there have just been so many situations where the economics have conspired against people of color to keep them out. The housing laws that, you know, blocked all that wealth building. And so, you know, what are we going to do about it? It's either we do something or we just keep talking about it, which is what we mostly do. Yeah, we mostly talk about I really think we should do so. You know what? Make it illegal and go back and redo it. I uh, This is where I've been at. Uh, but no more arrests. I always go, I, illegal with that asterisk, no arrests. Don't arrest anybody for smoking reefer because everybody's doing it. We all know it. And uh, some people get arrested, others don't. Uh, Peter Cunningham, thank you so much for coming in one more time. Friday, December 20th at the Hungry Brain uh, on Belmont Avenue in Chicago. Peter, at 8 o'clock, did you say? 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock, my bad. Uh, the Bread and Butter Band will be playing. He'll be taking requests then. He'll study and get his Rage Against the Machine going. Right, D? There you go. There you go, yeah. Uh, and uh, he'll be ready to go. Uh, have a uh, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year. We'll bring you back uh, in January to have more political talk. How about that? That. Sounds like fun. Always fun. All right. That's Peter P.C. Cunningham. I also want to thank Miles Kampflassen uh, for being on the show earlier today. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And as Peter Cunningham can tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites. And wherever else you download your favorite podcast, Apple, Google Play, Spotify, all of them, all right? Downloaders, we live stream this program Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, but mainly the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. Join us. Join the chat room. Shout out to everyone who weighed in on the chat room today. Great conversation. We'll see you tomorrow. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.